1: Episode 54 Wolves Under Fire, featuring Samantha Brueger. Wolves are one of those animals who inhabit not only the material world, but mythological and cultural spaces as well. Metaphorically, Settler Colonial Society warns of the Big Bad Wolf, the wolves at the door, wolves in sheep's clothing, and lone wolves. In popular art, Duran Duran scored it big with Hungry Like the Wolf and Leonardo DiCaprio starred in The Wolf of Wall Street. A bit further back, Jack London wrote White Fang and Sergei Prokofiev composed Peter and the Wolf, which we are hearing now in the background. First nations in North America had much different traditions about wolves, but it is European biases that led to their near extinction in what is now called the United States. And it is the policies of federal and state governments that now largely control the wolf's future, which is the theme of today's podcast. Our guest is Samantha Brugger, the Wildlife Coexistence Campaigner for Wild Earth Gardens, an organization that seeks to protect and restore the wildlife, wild places, wild rivers, and health of the U.S. American West. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Women's Studies from the University of California, Riverside, and a Master of Public Policy from Pepperdine. Her past work experience includes local government and business relations, public affairs, and environmental policy. Samantha and I talked on January 13th, and we discussed the recent and tragic federal delisting of wolves, and the devastating effects of the Trump administration on the environment, how livestock trade organizations are more extreme than many of their member ranchers in terms of wolf recovery issues, the failure of the feds to hold bad actors accountable, how wolves are killed by state and federal government agencies as a matter of policy, the Animal Damage Control Act, compensation programs for livestock taken by wolves, the successful Colorado referendum to reintroduce wolves, wolf policy at the state level, the danger of agricultural and residential rodenticides for wildlife, the Great Lake Wolves, prairie ecosystems, the nomination of Native American Deb Holland for Interior Secretary, Non-Lethal Coexistence with Wolves in Residential and Agricultural Contexts, and the work of Wild Earth Guardians. If you appreciate this episode, please share it on social media. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. To support the podcast financially, you can make a one-time donation to paypal.me colibri, or become a patron at patreon.com slash colibri, which is spelled K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. Patrons get early access to podcast episodes, plus exclusive content. For more info, visit radiofreesunroot.com. Now here is my conversation with Samantha Brueger, the wildlife coexistence campaigner for Wild Earth Guardians. appreciate you giving me some time to talk about stuff today.
0: Oh, good. Well, I appreciate you bringing more attention to this really important and tough and complicated issue.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you say complicated, I guess that's a good place to start as any. So what what's what's happened <laughs> recently is that the, the feds just uh, revoked the uh, protected status for the gray wolf at the for the for the Endangered Species Act at the federal level. And then what we're left with is different state regulations, which uh, definitely vary from each other, right?
0: Yes. Yes, I think that not only do they vary, um, some states are just particularly awful at state regulations. I think if we look at states like Idaho, or Wyoming, um, even Utah, and The delisted region has a bounty um, on wolves. So I think that what we see is that kind of when state management takes over, it is almost more quickly susceptible to the whims of politics, whereas on the federal level and having that kind of protection and the resources that the ESA provides, um, it's a little slower as far as the turnover is. Um, But it did feel very political, I
1: think, with this last decision. Right, the decision by the by the feds, you mean?
0: Yes, by the last decision uh, by the feds with the Trump administration to delist wolves.
1: Right, right. So the Trump administration. I, I feel like I, I'm interested in hearing what you think, as someone who's involved, uh, you know, in in activism around this, because my my impression is that the environmental issues didn't get enough attention during the Trump administration in the public eye. That is the things that Trump, the Trump administration was doing to the environment, were are not getting as much attention as other, as other, as other policies were. I feel like, um, uh, they were almost ignored to some degree.
0: Yeah. I think that, I hope that with this administration, we've learned a lot. Um, and hopefully those, uh, mistakes can be fixed uh, with the Biden administration coming in, but, I would say that Trump was very skillful at was capturing the media and the general public's attention for kind of the outlandish things he was saying and doing. But meanwhile, um, his administration was functioning in such a way that it was doing incredibly devastating things to the environment that flew under the radar because of uh, kind of the distraction of Trump's general presence.
1: Right, right. And definitely Wild Earth Guardians. That's your that your organization was trying to call attention to these the whole time, obviously.
0: yes, i I think that we were we were trying, and I think that the twenty four hour news cycle, especially within this administration, it was really tough to break through. Um, there There has been a ton happening that deserves a lot of media coverage. Um, So it's made it even more opportune, really, for an administration that's looking to capitalize on the environment and what the earth and the animals um, (laughs) mean and have uh, to offer, I guess, humans. Really, the way they look at it is what can this do for us, Um, both financially, really mainly financially, economically. Um, It it enabled the Trump administration to really wreak havoc on that. Right. Um, So, yeah, we tried to break through the news cycle, but it, it wasn't successful. Um, for a lot of reasons, um and a lot of that was the kind of captivating presence trump had um, and the other was that there were some very real um awful and important things uh, happening in the last year as well
1: right, right, definitely well getting getting back to the wolves, the problems with the that the wolves have had obviously go back before the Trump administration as well. I mean, this has been going on for decades, or I guess really centuries, honestly, that, uh, you know, the settler colonial culture here has been uh, attacking, attacking the wolf. And it seems like in the time that we're in now, the main uh, enemy of the wolf seems to be the ranching industry at this point.
0: I would say that is, is mostly true. I think that the unfortunate thing too, with the, the livestock industry is that the representatives, the Cattlemen's Association's reps or the Farm Bureau reps, um, are often even more extreme than what we see on the ground with individual ranchers. Right, And that kind of silences the voices of individual ranch- ranchers that can whisper to me, I really like seeing a wolf. Um, and that's the sad part about this, is that, that they they then move through this system of legislature and of both the state and federal level of becoming more and more kind of extreme and polarizing in their views. Um, but it's lost touch from that original rancher that may have been, um, more open and engaged in having wolves on the landscape. So I, I think you're right in saying that, yes, the industry, but I would say that it's industry reps and those very loud, bad actors in the livestock industry that, um, are constantly phoning their reps. I can think of of one in particular right now um, as we are engaging in a lawsuit over the Colville Forest Plan in northeastern Washington um, that those vocal few um, can really derail um, a lot of coexistence efforts.
1: Right, right. Okay, I think with this, uh, you just mentioned the Colville Forest in Washington. I think I read a little bit about this in your materials going through this. There was a rancher there who himself was responsible for the deaths of like 26 different wolves?
0: Uh, I think we're at 28 now. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I would say, yes, the rancher himself is not very proactive in applying nonlethals, nor is uh, this particular rancher cooperating with state management and other resources available um, to him for free to um, take proactive measures to uh, protect his cattle that are already destined for slaughter and horrific things at feedlots and beyond, which is the other hypocrisy and irony around this. Um, But yes, I, I would say he has been able to get away with it because of the irresponsibility and recklessness of the Forest Service in that case, where the Forest Service plan didn't even consider gray wolves, um, for the call though. Uh, So to blatantly uh, ignore that, even though it's been an ongoing issue and we can see through document searches that they've discussed wolves, they know they're there, (laughs) but they didn't even fully consider it in their latest forest plan. Um, and that's where the, the legal angle comes in is that it's important for these management agencies, to work through the appropriate channels and fully engage in the environmental um, process, the environmental impact process, engage with NEPA and uh, really consider all factors. And I think that the failing of the Forest Service then enabled a bad actor to really run amuck over um, over the whole system that's in place. I think we saw that with the presidency too, as I giggled to myself, um, that unfortunately the institutions in place um, did not put checks and balances where they could have and should have. And because of that, um, one bad actor has been able to have 28 wolves killed on his behalf.
1: Right, right. Now, when you say on his behalf, I I know that the federal government has a program, uh, wildlife services under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which will kill wildlife on behalf of agricultural interests. But then there's also states, right, Uh, fish and wildlife usually who will do this as well.
0: Right. So Wildlife Services does this in states where um, we haven't made settlements via lawsuits really with uh, Wildlife Services for engaging in this kind of activity. And so in Washington, Wildlife Services cannot do this work because of a a past settlement. But then the state management agency does come in and do that work. And I think the, the more infuriating thing which should also raise alarms for our, our fiscally conservative uh, members of, of our society is that they're paying upwards of a hundred thousand dollars to remove these wolves. And that's taxpayer money. That's going straight out of the state of Washington to kill wolves for one bad actor rancher <laughs> to defend cows that were already destined for slaughter. Anyway, you know, if you follow that logic down the line, um, it's incredible. It's in, incredible in, in a very frustrating way how that happens.
1: Right, right. And so you mentioned a little bit ago, NEPA, this was, uh, I, I hope that you could explain a little bit about that, because that was one of the programs that was attacked by the Trump administration. And it's one that I think most people who haven't looked into environmental issues haven't heard of that program before and don't realize how important it is.
0: Yeah, I think that what NEPA does is that it enables us to go through a full scientific review process over different uses of land and over different impacts on animals like the wolf. Um, and it makes the process both transparent and accessible to the public. And unfortunately, what the Trump administration did um, was set back uh, I don't know, 30 years. Uh, it made it less transparent. It made it easier to check the boxes and quickly move through um, the environmental review of um, forests, of national parks, of BLM land, and all of, all of the other public spaces we all love. Um, it enabled, again, at, on the federal level really, the ability to quickly move through for the purpose of uh, signing off on extractive use.
1: Right, right. And it stands for the National Environmental um,
0: Protection Act.
1: Protection Act, right? <laughs> and is that another one of these acts that goes back to the Nixon era?
0: I believe so. We'll have to check by, right. via Google in a second. Right, I right. am pretty certain that it during that, uh, that period.
1: Yeah, because there's just that that's, again, something that uh, a lot of people don't know is that so many of these environmental protections, ironically, were put into place by by Nixon, you know, that that's when we also got the um, when we got the well, we got the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and I believe the EPA all at that point, you know, and then there was kind of a they've all just been kind of chipping away at them for the last 50 years since then. It seems like it's been basically the story, but so there's also something I was reading about, um, the animal damage control act. Now that's where the government is. Um, basically if, a if, uh, a, if, a, if a rancher says, Oh, I lost something, I lost a sheep or a cow to a wolf, then they can get reimbursed for this.
0: Oh my God! That's you've you've listed my least favorite act of, of all time. Oh, I, I, uh, I, that's
1: great. Let's talk about this <laughs> one. Yeah.
0: No. Um, so that really is the act that empowers wildlife services to continue to exist. Um, you had mentioned them previously. Wildlife services is a a program of the federal government that lives within the Department of Agriculture. Um, the name Wildlife Services is a misnomer. They were um, actually a, Animal, dan- animal damage management um, prior to being named Wildlife Services. And they have been completely empowered. And I'm assuming um, their funding is often all tied back to this particular act. And I think that the thing about Wildlife Services is one, the name is totally misleading. So people see that and have no idea. Um, what this actually means because these folks aren't servicing wildlife. They're not um, there to help wildlife. I had some friends actually in in undergraduate studies that thought, oh, I could be a biologist for wildlife services. Wouldn't that be great? And no, you look at it um, and it's absolutely the opposite of what you would think it's doing. Um, it is not Fish and Wildlife Services. It is not um, a program that benefits wildlife in any way, shape, or form. Um, for the Department of Agriculture, they kill over one million animals every single year, and those are all you know native species. That's if I take away their invasive species that they kill as well. Um, so yeah, I would say that that act really you know set in place an institution that again has enabled the livestock industry to have disproportionate influence and power over wildlife management. And it's really a realm that the industry doesn't have any expertise nor experience in, but it's also a realm where we see um, different state wildlife management agencies feeling now they have to have uh, representatives from the ag industry on their fish and wildlife commissions or um, at the legislature, they have to have input from rural and ranching communities when they pass wildlife laws. And I think all of this, you know, ticks back to that act and the empowerment of wildlife services who still flies under the radar and kills millions of animals each year. So that's my, there's my rant about wildlife services. But yes, I, that killing program has just been res- responsible for so many dead native animals, including wolves and grizzly. Um, bald eagles have, been accidentally killed, golden eagles. Um, just a lot, a lot of damage to
1: um, native dogs, animals. And, right, prairie dogs have been another one.
0: God, yes. In, in Colorado, in one year, they killed almost sixty thousand prairie dogs. Um, and we know that there are little ecosystem engineers, right, right. working underground. Um, and they also are, are fascinating in how they have their own language, they can talk to each other. Um, they um, are pretty evolved for, for for being, you know, oversized gophers um, in a lot of ways. Um, but they are so important. And I think we see that with each keystone species, that there is a complete recklessness and the sheer quantity um, that this entity is willing to kill.
1: Right, right. And then that's related to the... Well, I guess maybe I'm thinking of something else. Then, what's the what's the program where the ranchers are able to get reimbursed for uh, death the, of their animals, or is that only by state?
0: <laughs> it, so it's both. Um, okay. With the Endangered Species Act in place, um, they can get federal compensation for livestock losses. Um, with wolves, since that is no longer the case as of January fourth, they cannot get federal compensation. Oh, okay. But then state. States then tend to step up and cover them anyway. And I know they also get um, additional insurance coverage, too, as far as uh, cows go. So to just name an example, in Washington, they can apply for compensation, and that's at two times market value. So double market value, Um, and yet still... They want wolves killed, even though they're being compensated at double market value for something they were planning to slaughter anyway. Um, so it's it's interesting to me um, how that's been able to continue to happen over and over again.
1: Right, right. Because I've thought but about yes. that that program before, and I've wondered, <laughs> you know, is it well? Because I know that there's also been cases of um, uh, of them making claims that you know a wolf killed this cow, and actually. That wasn't what happened, you know, it was some other animal or I just starved to death or and, and I believe if we look at the stats that actually more cows are killed by dogs, domesticated dogs, than by wolves or or even by coyotes, you know. And so part of me has been like, well, if this is going to if 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 this is going to protect the wolf at all, does it matter? I mean, is is, is it worth it just to pay the money anyway, you know? In order to, in order, okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear what you say about that.
0: i say no. Um, I think that what we've seen is that in extending this to the agricultural community, rather than it deterring, you know, anger or encouraging and fostering coexistence, um, what we've seen is that they will collect the funding and generally still Wolves. It doesn't change um, really the perceptions or feelings in a community in a way where um, there's some really excellent outreach programs, which, of course, with COVID now, that go into schools and talk about wolves and um, all of the work that they do for the environment and their social structures. And I'm kind of getting to kids early with a lot of science and knowledge that I think can change how communities view wolves, um, starting with a younger generation. But the kind of payoff, um, it's again, it's something that's taken and used. Some folks won't accept it because they say they don't want the government handout. They want the wolf dead. Um, Other folks will accept it and still want the wolf dead. And I'm sure that there are a handful that are accepting it and feel better about the wolves. Um, I don't want to generalize uh, the ranching because they're, again, a diverse and a rich community of folks. So, but yes, I think that what we've seen in the states that offer that, it hasn't changed the perception or the
1: tolerance of wolves. Right, right. And, but so, but the public perception of wolves at large is, is very different. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's mixed, right? Because one thing that we saw that was good news that came out of the, the elections last year, uh, um, you know, besides uh, removing the orange menace, was uh, the Colorado passed this referendum to reintroduce wolves, and that seemed like great news.
0: Yeah, I think that that is great news. I think it's a, a light of hope um, as we go into this this 2021 year, which has not started great, but I'm hoping better <laughs> right i think that that was really a, a bright light for us and um coming from i lived in colorado for a long time and the amount of chronic wasting disease that occurs there um and the kind of other issues that befall the ungulates in that state including moose, which were reintroduced um i think wolves can do a real service um to keeping those prey populations healthy those ungulate populations Healthy, the ones that everyone wants to kill, um, keep their their populations robust and, and healthy. And I, I'm excited that it came back. I'm a little, uh, or that it passed. Uh, again, I think that there needs to be a lot of groundwork done. If we look at Washington as an example, um, we can see kind of the mistakes of the past and how this can form, you know, form new wolf policy for Colorado, um, that there's a lot we can learn from in shaping Colorado's wolf policy. Um, I'm actually really excited. We haven't opened this or published this yet, but we're working um, with four other groups to create um, a really excellent guide to wolf conservation planning for states. Great. And we're hoping to have that ready next month Um, in a way way that Colorado can use it then as they go into um, the blueprint for reintroducing wolves in Colorado. Um, And the same with our Great Lakes states. Um, Some of their plans are coming up for review and, We're hoping that if we integrate science and values, because often the science is just used to justify the values before they they ever um, even really have a value based discussion. I think that if we look through the lens of science and values, we have the opportunity for some excellent wolf conservation plans. And Colorado is is one of those states that I'm I'm really hopeful for, I think, to see a state governor in a photo with his hand next to the size of a, of a wolf print or one of his staff's hands next to a wolf print celebrating that on social media um, was rare and exciting and um, very inspiring. So I hope that we can build on that for the Rocky Mountain region um, and
1: beyond. Right. So, so there have already been some success stories that, that you would say in other states at this point around, around the wolves.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of that is really to be determined um, now that we've had full delisting. Um, With Oregon, which is where I currently live, um, wolves have enjoyed Endangered Species Act protections in the more western part of the state, um, but that's also included the rogue pack here in Oregon, and the rogue pack is actually, um, has been uh, preying on cattle um, out of convenience, and There's also a whole bunch of other things like fire, like cows weren't moved because of wildfires or
1: um,
0: there's more pressure on the ecosystems because of wildfires, which I digress, those come into play. Uh, But yes, the rogue pack has lost protections now. And for me, that becomes scary as we see the delisting of wolves and now the state's up to managing it. And we know that we have a producer around the rogue pack Um, that does not want assistance, that wants the wolves killed. So um, we know kind of what we're working toward here. It becomes kind of this countdown, um, if you will, of killing wolves for livestock and or uh, harvest or take of wolves having hunting and trapping seasons, um, which are unnecessary and cruel. And um, unfortunately, that's how state management agencies' uh, values work.
1: Right, right, yeah. Because most of these agencies began not from the viewpoint of conservation per se, but of management of of wildlife, and that's a very different concept.
0: Right, right. We um, our state agency, agencies are very traditionalist as far as their their value orientation goes. Um, even though the majority of folks, um, especially in our western coastal states, are mutualists, um, where they mutualism mutualism being where they prefer to coexist with with wildlife, that they like the idea of of having a, a robust population of native animals, carnivores or otherwise. Um, but yeah, the state management agencies just kind of look at it as when can we start hunting or killing how do we keep populations healthy so we can hunt and kill them? <laughs> and, um, and what do we do as far as management goes um, to make sure we can kill more of them? Um, I think that that's a tough thing. And that comes into play with wolves too, um, with ungulates being the prize that most people like to hunt because um, they taste better, I guess. Right. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. I think there's issues around that too, that I can dive into, but California does a great job. Um, wolves are still protected um, through the state and endangered species act there. Um, I think they've had some difficulties around poaching in the northern part of the state. Um, there was a pack that disappeared at some point. Now, I'm, I can't recall the pack's name. Um, but it, it's usually around illegal growing in that area, which is interesting. And uh, folks coming across wolves that way, um, that are illegally growing, and or kind of this illegal...
1: You mean illegal cannabis are, grows? Yes,
0: yes, oh, okay. illegal cannabis grows. Right, okay. Um, is where I think the majority of poaching happens in, uh, in California. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've done a bit of work in the cannabis industry, industry myself, just as, as a, a worker, not as a farmer, and there's a, a host of environmental issues that exist around cannabis farming, uh, both around streams and around plastic and around pesticide use, but then also definitely around wildlife. In that they often use um, poisons and rodenticides that they put out to protect the plants, especially the especially the grows that are the the trespass grows out on public lands. They'll put rodenticides out, and then we know what happens is that rodents eat the pesticides and then the bigger animals eat it and then it builds up up the food chain and then you you know then now you have dead raptors dead mountain lions and and i suppose wolves are probably susceptible to that too
0: Yeah, we actually uh, worked on a bill in California to ban that second generation anticoagulant rodenticide that um, there were traces of in P22, the famous Hollywood mountain lion, and um, some of the other Santa Monica's uh, mountain lion population. Um, But yes, it works up the food chain in a a terrifying way uh, that can impact mountain lions, which are very few in Southern California, and condors, too, as we look at the northern area, um, where we're hoping they'll come to Oregon soon. Um, I think that that's definitely something we should consider.
1: Right, right. So they, the the wolf has state protection in California, but not in Oregon yet. I guess I had assumed that Oregon had, had given that.
0: No, I believe that they once had state protections in Oregon, but those state protections were removed in
1: 2015. Oh, okay.
0: So they were prematurely delisted in the state um, before I moved here. So I'm, I'm sure it was probably a, a political play at that time. Um, but if you're more, if you're curious about that, I definitely can put you in touch with some colleagues um, who've done more Oregon specific work for an extended period of time. But as I understand now, they are delisted in the state. We will hopefully petition to relist them um, within the state here. Um, And Oregon's wolf plan is a little better than Washington's, um, mainly just because of who is using it. Again, we've seen how documents can be wielded one way or the other. Um, But but the state plan has has worked pretty well as far as um, not getting wolves killed in Oregon.
1: Right, right. And then something that I didn't really know, and I think that a lot of people haven't heard of either, is that there's wolves as far east as uh, Michigan as well, right?
0: Yes. Yes. The Great Lakes wolves. Um, yeah, we we have a very robust population of wolves um, in the Great Lakes states. And I think that we get so caught up with our Rocky Mountain region wolves, we, right. we forget that um, there is really an opportunity for um, genetic Connectivity with our Great Lake states. If we have a healthy population across uh, the lines, as we could see too, that would help our lobos if they went through, Cal- or through Colorado and had some more southwest dispersal. Then we might start seeing some some help for our lobos down there. Uh, but yes, but there the are lobos in- the lobos being
1: the the Mexican wolf.
0: Yes, the Lobos being the Mexican wolf, um, who is still listed. Um, they are a, a genetically special segment of the population, so they still have protections. Um, but there's only a hundred and something of them out there, um, and they get they're killed each year, often by mistaken identity, coyotes saying, folks saying that they thought it was a coyote. Um, But yeah, I think that what we'd see is that if wolves, if the Endangered Species Act actually worked the way it was intended, um, we would be looking for wolf recovery across (laughs) the geography where they could live. And wolves are habitat generalists. So that geography is very vast. And I think that it also includes prairie systems that we don't even have a a speck of wolf on um, let alone coyotes cause there's still bounties out for them in many of those States um, that there's really an opportunity though, as far as restoring the wolf population. And I think that the challenge there really is making sure that the education is in place and that the conversations happen before wolves get there to almost mitigate the, um, the chaos that happens when, when wolves are there, um, and then immediately the Farm Bureau uh, steps in and kind of riles everyone up a bit.
1: Right, right. So historically, were there wolves in the in the prairies, in the Great Plains? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I grew up in Nebraska. I'm familiar with the landscape there and the Sandhills, hills, very beautiful place. I don't know if you've ever been there, but of course the Prairies are another one of those ecosystems, like the well, like wetlands and like the old growth forests, where they've been ninety five percent taken out. You know, at this point. So, right? Yeah, yeah. With the bison right. and the and the prairie right. dogs being the big the big losers there too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that if you think about if you visualize a historic prairie, you could see the bison herds. You could see how wolves could could live in that landscape. You could see how wolves would feed on on bison, which is You know, it's a tough feat for a wolf to feed on bison, but wolves that have learned that bison are their prey actually pass that trait down through familial lines. So one pack of wolves, let's say in Yellowstone, which is where we've done the most studies, um, if one wolf there um, is skilled at preying on bison, then her offspring would be uh, taught skills to prey on bison Mm -hmm. and more likely uh, to enjoy bison, which is fascinating about wolves and again speaks to their social structures and uh, their kind of communications with each other.
1: That is fascinating. So, so there's been wolves uh, uh, pre- preying on bison in Yellowstone.
0: Yeah. And I would say that it's more, it's an individual that then teaches the others. So uh-huh. we can see that with distinct packs um one of my my favorite wolves of all time which met a, a sad end wolf oh six she was a yellowstone wolf a fierce fierce female warrior and she actually was known to prey on elk alone and she had she had dispersed early and she formed a pack with two younger males that were kind of rowdy but it was very unusual all of it oh. in that it was a, a female lead um, two males, and uh, she uh, was mighty in, in the elk prey, and her daughter also was mighty in that way. Um, but she tells the story really of another unique issue to wolves is kind of the need for buffer zones around protected areas. Um, she was a Yellowstone wolf who, um, as soon as she left the park, was shot and killed by a trophy hunter or a wolf with such a story and such a magnificent wolf um, to have that happen for, I think the, the permit fees are what, 15, $25 um, to kill a wolf. That was also, again, if we go to the economics bringing in millions of visitors who came back to just see that wolf and would write letters about her. Um, So again, it's just that the contrast there is that there's just a very stark, Contrast. And if we go back to the Nixon era, I would love to learn how that divide was bridged or how that was formed because I don't know when animals became a, bipartisan or became a partisan issue, is what I meant to say. Um, I'm not sure when or why that happened. I'm pretty sure that the ag industry lobbyists had something to do with it, but. Uh, it's it's sad for me to see. My, my dad's an old school baby boomer conservative, um, and my mom's an old school liberal feminist, so they're fun to have conversations with. Um, but I think that even for my dad's generation, he was devastated to learn that, as, as a former Republican as he was, that wildlife and wild places are not being protected by a party purely because of partisanship not because of science. And I think that for the compassionate conservative, um, it's important to be aware of what your lawmakers are doing just because they feel like it's the right thing to do along party lines. And I think it's important to make sure your voice is heard too, because there are conservatives who love wolves. (laughs) So speak up more conservatives if you're out there. Um, yeah, I think that that's something important, too, is that this shouldn't it shouldn't be partisan. It shouldn't be. Yeah, I I hate Trump. We, we all hate Trump. I, I, I understand that. And I know I am liberal and hate Trump. But I would hope that even when I had the Bush administration in office, there were dignified conversations around Wildlife and wild issues, and I hope that we can have those conversations and really look at the crisis we're living in now. We're in a climate crisis. We're in a biodiversity crisis. We're in an era of mass extinction, and the realities of these situations can't be ignored anymore. Or my kid's going to grow up and read about wolves in history books, kind of like Nebraska. You know, right. it's it's not that's a pressing issue now it's not okay to to have a partisan line around it
1: right right i I feel like yeah i mean definitely the partisanship has gotten worse over the years and on on basically every issue and 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 of course it doesn't make sense for it to be a, a partisan issue but i also think that what made things a little bit different during the nixon time was that you had a very powerful grassroots movement there was an upswelling that simply couldn't be ignored you know because when there's enough of a right. of a people's movement behind something then a politician's going to go with something whatever their party is because they're going to be like you know put their finger up see which way the wind's blowing and be like okay this just makes sense to 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 go this way and so that's where it's really you know up to us you know to be pushing them you know Uh, as hard as we can, no matter what, what party they're from, because of course, you know, there's been times when the Democrats have definitely not been friends to the environments either. I'm thinking of Clinton and the forests, you know, for example, or I, or I'm thinking of Obama and, um, uh, uh, fossil fuel production, you know, and the, and the, and the pipelines and the, and the fracking, you know, et cetera. But there was one,
0: one tried to delist wolves too, you know, let's make sure that that's known. Um, that happened too. I think that, these lobbying interests are so large and so vocal that it's important. Again, like you said, for the grassroots to stand up. I'm sorry, I kind
1: of cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, no, that's that's that, that was a good that was a good place to do it. But um, so there was one, you know. So I haven't, you know, necessarily had very much. Uh, I haven't have a. I have haven't personally have a lot of hope just because the administration is changing. However, the one thing that did impress me was the pick that he has for the Biden has for. Interior Secretary uh, Deb Holland from New Mexico. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so putting a Native American in charge of in of Interior—that's never happened before, and that could be a really amazing thing. Uh, many people don't realize, of course, that the Bureau of Indian Affairs is under the Department of Interior. So this seemed significant to me, and I was surprised to see it.
0: Yeah, I I get chills every time um, I, I I think about it. Um, just because it's so incredible and groundbreaking. Um, I think that the Biden cabinet picks have been beautiful as far as the diversity fabric across them in a lot of ways. Um, I haven't been as impressed with his, uh, department of ag appointee, but oh, I yeah, terrible, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I also understand the Biden dilemma and that he's trying to put a country back together. Um, so it's going to hurt me sometimes too. Uh, but with, with now, you know, uh, secretary appointee, uh, Holland, uh, guardians is actually home based in uh, New Mexico and Santa Fe. Uh, so we were very excited to see this pick as far as it, it speaks to our, our geographic home. Um, but also that it's speaks to our values a lot i think that what we have seen over time is kind of the the silencing of of both indigenous people and of wolves and i think if we draw parallels we can do that along the lines with disenfranchised uh people in our world just dis- disenfranchised human inhabitants along with um the way that we have pushed down these kind of carnivore populations and the desire to control and tame and constrain and constrict. Um, it's just the parallels are so tragic. And that's why I think that this appointment is incredible, right? Because to me, a, a female indigenous voice for the wild is the same as um, Harriet a wolf howl. So I, I just, I think that's an, it's an awesome, awesome choice. Look, I'm getting teary eyed now. It's just, it's, it's really incredible.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was, I was very pleasantly surprised. I'm fairly cynical about these things. I I haven't voted for a Democrat for president since 92 because I've been very disappointed, but I was really impressed. and I really hope that something good, you know, comes out of that for sure. So how to deal with wolves being in the environment if you are a rancher or an agriculturalist, but without killing them. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure, I can. And I would like to preface the conversation with I've lost animals, domestic animals to coyotes in the past. I can't, you know, I haven't had that experience with wolves, but there are a ton of things that you can do Um, to coexist with wildlife, whether it's a a backyard habitat, um, which is where I lost my pets or it's, you know, a public lands grazing allotment. Um, there are a ton of things you can put in place. So with wolves, um, one of the most effective things, if not the most effective things with wolves is range riding. And I would like to say range riding is different from human presence, um, often they'll get looped in together but a range rider is a skilled person who is skilled both with livestock and skilled with wolf behavior and um, wolf uh what am i trying to say with tracking and um understanding wolf movement and understanding wolf sign and seeing wolf sign early and is someone that's able to uh really combine both of those areas of expertise in a way to effectively keep cattle safe. And I think that in places where we've seen good range riding happening, there have been little to no instances of wolf depredation. Um, I think that if you even look at um, around sheep too, there was a project uh, that the Wood River Wolf Project did and they had zero instances of wolf depredation on sheep for all of the folks that were participating in that project. Um, similarly, in northeastern Washington, there's another group um, that does work like this, and they've had no instances of wolf depredation. Um, and you can contrast that right with their neighbor, who had 28 instances of wolves being killed for um depredation in the same region so I think that the unfortunate thing is that uh, it has to be spread further and it has to be funded um, is the other big issue but if we look at spending a hundred thousand dollars to kill a wolf I think spending a hundred thousand dollars to fund a range riding program is probably much much better Um, there is a, a range rider and it's I think he's his name is Daniel Curry and his program, I think is Griff uh, range Riding. and to see the talent um, from his work and what he's doing on the range. He is living out there with the cows and it's not like go home for dinner um, because wolves are coming out at night. Um, And so, and it's on horseback. So it's, he naturally moves with the cattle. Um, So that's, Thing number one, range riding. Um, the second thing is if you're in more of a controlled space, like if you have a pasture at your house, um, you know, acreage, then uh, flaggery can come into place. That's flagging of the perimeter. Um, the flagging actually kind of bothers wolves. Um, they will test it out after a while because they are incredibly smart. If you think of a border collie or a German shepherd, our smartest canids that we know, um, wolves are smarter than that, so they are going to go test the flags after a while and see what's going on. Um, that's where turbo flag- flagry is really useful. That's flagry combined with electric fencing. Um, so if they go test it or sniff it, they get a zap. and They're like, mm, never mind. I'll go. I'll go <laughs> eat a baby deer. That's easier. Um, and that's the other big thing too. Wolves are aren't trying to eat you, your children, or your animals. Um, Wolves, are, wolves and other carnivores are generally going to go for the prey that's easiest, you know, to, to get. Um, and that means the lowest amount of risk to them. Um, so things that seem more risky to them, they're less likely to go after. Um, so, yeah, that's the pasture, pasture backyard pasture. Um, the other big thing is animal, animal husbandry practices. If you are in calving or lambing season... Um, then you'll want to do that somewhere that's sheltered because all of the, the birthing process and the afterbirth, that's all an attractant that can bring wolves and other carnivores in, they'll sniff it out. Um, and also those animals are very vulnerable at that time, which is another, um, kind of a, you know, sending another alarm into the air to let wolves know that there's something to eat. Um, the next thing, if we go down, I'm going to go smaller, is that if you are just a rural rural person with a open backyard that maybe abuts a forest service, you can hear my child in the background trying to enter the room. I apologize. Okay. Um If you are a rural person, Sawyer, you need to go to Daddy. Mama, the cookies are here. Thank you. Okay,
1: <laughs> sorry. It's fine. It's cute. Very cute. <laughs>
0: Uh, but if you abut a a Forest Service land, or you're in a rural area, and you know that there are wolves or other carnivores in the area, outdoor cats don't 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 let your cat be an outdoor cat if you don't want your cat to be eaten. Um, Beyond the fact that cats are smaller and vulnerable that way, um, leaving food for them outside then also brings in animals. It's another attractant. And I think that once we look at coexistence really at large, it's how do we limit our attractants? How do we put in place deterrence? And then what do we need to do as far as offensive then defensive measures? um, Should an animal keep, continue to engage With coyote areas, I've even seen uh, roller fence, um, where if a coyote tries to jump the fence, they just roll off. um, And that's that's pretty effective. (laughs) Um, I've also seen those little dog vests, and I've heard they're effective, where it's it's like a vest a small dog can wear that has spikes on it that makes them like a porcupine in their backyard. Um, I've heard that those are effective. Um, Another thing for outdoor cats, Um, platforms, having raised areas where cats can escape to because they like to climb high um, is useful. Good lighting is useful. There was a woman um, in Montana, um, outside of uh, Yellowstone National Park, and she had just let her dog out at night. And if you've lived somewhere that's rural, sometimes you just, you're sleepy, you open the door, you let the dog out, you forget to look. Um, And there were wolves actually in the backyard at that time, and the wolves attacked the dog. She flicked the lights on and off. The wolves left. So it's not something where the wolf is going to turn on you and be this big, scary, voracious predator. I feel like that's something that's perpetuated over and over again. They are far more afraid of us than <laughs> than we are of them. And that light flicking really made them scatter. Um, but yeah, there's just so many things out there that you can put into place um, as far as being cautious. Um, when I lived in Colorado, I lived in a very rural area. And again, there's no fences. So you open the door, if you let the dog out, you call your dog back in. Well, sometimes there's a bull elk or, or a bull moose or something that's irritated that the dog is there. So just being cognizant of okay these are also my neighbors <laughs> and I need to think about that. I lose my mountain sense the more I'm I'm in the city. But really just thinking prior to your actions and also having those things in place that we talked about and those different deterrents and limiting those attractants. Feeding birds that's terrible. Don't 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 feed the birds. I know you want to feed the birds. Um, I know the birds like it, but. Again, instead of attractant, you're bringing us prey species in. And what follows the prey species are bigger animals down the food chain. Um, Yeah, landscaping. I could talk about this for hours. There's landscaping you can do, defensive landscaping in a way where you don't have shrubs around the perimeter where your animals are wandering because it provides coverage for a carnivore. Um, so you want to make sure that you don't make it cozy or make it a good hunting ground, um, really, in your backyard through landscaping, which is um, an easy solution, especially for a smaller area.
1: Right. And that one starts there- to overlap with uh, protection from fire as well, actually.
0: Right. Right. Defensible space, both from fire and from other naturally <laughs> occurring events.
1: Right, right. Well, maybe you could wrap it up today by because uh, it sounds like you, you've got some, some family to get back to there uh, just by telling us about um, Wild Earth Guardians and uh, briefly what it is that you do and how people can follow what you guys are doing and support what you're doing.
0: Oh, sure. I, I would love to. Um, I love our organization. Uh, wild Earth Guardians is a nonprofit. Um, we work on wild lands, wild rivers, uh I would. We have a climate and energy program and then wildlife, and uh, so we do various forms of environmental work. I work within the wildlife program. I'm the wildlife coexistence campaigner there, so I work on coexistence policy. Um, across the western states, Guardians is western re- region oriented. We work in, in the 11 westernmost states, and uh, you can find us at wildearthguardians.org and wild Earth is all one word. Um, and we also have social. I do not have our social in front of me, but I think we're Wild Earth Guard. Um, but check our website because we will have just those easy clicks if you want to follow us on social. And um, I'm also on Twitter where I tweet about these fun things. It's Sam underscore of underscore. The Wild. So I am Sam of the Wild um, on Twitter, and I I try to make these issues accessible in in ways for folks, um, both in for politicians, for citizens, and uh, for our community around us.
1: Voices for Nature and Peace is produced in the Gila River Valley, New Mexico, USA, on land that we acknowledge is illegally occupied Apache territory. The intro music is Zero G Yogi by Big Z, with narration by Kelly Moody of the Ground Shots podcast. This outro music is Trip A, also by Big Z. Commercial Break Narration by Nikki Hill. To become a financial supporter of this podcast, and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash colibri. K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I For more information on Radio Free Sunroot programming, please visit RadioFreeSunroot.com Thank you for listening. May you find joy in your own nature and peace.